Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hello and welcome to Cinematic Universe, a podcast that's all about comic book movies, brought to you by FilmDivider.com. I'm Joe Cunningham, and joining me to help make sense of the comics behind the movies are... Seth Patrick and James Hunt. On today's show we'll be discussing the latest comic book movie and TV news before launching into our spoiler-filled discussion of Christopher Nolan's 2005 film Batman Begins. But before any of that, I'm going to ask Seven James to explain a comic book concept... As a movie fan, I just don't understand. Uh, So, Seb, James, I actually haven't had to come up with a question this week because one of our listeners, uh, Paul Stewart, has sent in a question via email. um, And it's a question that I also have because I don't understand it either. Um, And he asked, what is the difference between the Green Goblin and the Hobgoblin? And don't just say the colour. So, yeah, what is the difference between those two characters? Because, uh, like, there's multiple versions of each of them. Is that right? Yeah. Was, do you want the long version or the really long version? <laughs> I mean, is there a third option? <laughs> I think I think, I think, think the super short version that I can boil it down to is that while there have been multiple Green Goblins and multiple Hobgoblins, if you take it as the Hobgoblin is a guy who gets his hands on a load of Green Goblin stuff but repurposes it into his own own identity then that's basically the while there have been multiple hobgoblins that's basically how the hobgoblin started yeah so i mean what at the moment differentiates him then why if he's just got some of the green goblin stuff like what what's different about the hobgoblin to the green goblin well i mean you know he has a different name and he has he does have a slightly different costume and stuff and sort of the the reasoning behind it is that um, in the early 80s, um, they, uh, Roger Stern was writing Amazing Spider-Man and was was basically, I think, kind of leaned on from above to sort of bring back the Green Goblin. But, you know, they'd already done Norman Osborn, they'd already done then Harry becoming the Green Goblin and then him not being the Green Goblin again. So I think it was just a case of kind of lateral thinking. It's like, okay, you want a Goblin-type character, but we don't just want to stick another character in exactly the same costume, so why don't we have someone who actually, you know, is still a guy flying around on a glider but let's make him a little bit different let's kind of you know change the style a bit and and redesign it and stuff um, and sort of the the one thing that he does kind of owe to the original green goblin as well is 
again, it's sort of you know bringing back a certain type of storyline is the mystery of who this character is. In in the same way as they had had a mystery over you know who the Green Goblin was going to turn out to be, and it was that thing that um, Stanley and Steve Ditko famously fell out over. Um, with the Hobgoblin, they went years and years without revealing who the Hobgoblin's secret identity was. So much so that I think, as I understand it, and I think if I've got this right, Roger Stern had left by the time... Roger Stern had left before they revealed who it was, and then they revealed who it was, and Roger Stern didn't like that revelation. So when he came back, he retconned it to be somebody else. So that's that's where you get the confusion of who the Hobgoblin was in the first place. Was it Ned Leeds or was it Roderick Kingsley? Um, I mean, it was now, partly because <laughs> now he's a franchise villain. So there are loads of different yeah. Hobgoblins. Yeah, I was going to say because I read Superior Spider-Man, and yeah, he was yeah, in yeah, there, of course, and yeah. they've they've got an. an- like the Green Goblin and the Hobgoblin seem to have an antagonist, antagonistic well, relationship because the, of that. Kind the of. funny thing about the current Hobgoblin is that the current Hobgoblin is Phil Urich. Phil is Ben Urich's nephew, uh, but in the 90s, Phil <laughs> was a short-lived heroic Green Goblin. So he actually had his own comic called Green Goblin that I actually own every issue of because I found them at a car boot sale. Every 12 <laughs> issues. All 12 issues of Green Goblin from the 90s. <laughs> so Phil Urich basically found the Green Goblin's secret lair and thought, hey, this stuff's really cool, and put the mask on, and the mask had this kind of circuitry and stuff in it that... that gave him powers um so he became a green goblin but because he was a good guy decided to be a hero as the green goblin quickly realized that this was a bad idea because if a guy turns up in a green goblin costume on a glider everyone goes oh it's the green goblin he's a bad guy (laughs) hence why his comic only lasted 12 issues because nobody bought it and it had dreadful art some of the worst art i've ever seen in a marvel comic actually (laughs) but it was good fun and i liked the character of phil and then dan slot because dan slot seems to like all of the exact same bits of spider-man that me and james do <laughs> um he kind of was probably one of about five people who remembered the character of phil um brought him back turned him into a bit of a selfish dickhead and made him the new hobgoblin amazing okay well so i, I mean I, I think that kind of makes sense so um, <laughs> it's, um it, it, it is basically it's like it's a spin-off franchise from the green yeah. goblin is the way to sum up the hobgoblin <laughs> okay let's move on now to take a look at some comic book movie and tv news that has broken over the past week um and we'll start with the news that um patrick stewart has confirmed that Professor X will be showing up in Wolverine 3, and that kind of chimes with some long-standing rumours. I mean, I think they've been going around for about a year now that Patrick Stewart was going to make an appearance in Wolverine 3, um, which is all the more interesting given the way that those universes splintered in Days of Future Past, and whether Patrick Stewart would be appearing as... The, the version of Professor X that he has always played, or uh, the version of Professor X that um, James McAvoy in the other universe now grows old to become. The original rumor was that it was going to be a Wolverine and Professor X buddy movie, wasn't it? Like all those months ago. James, what, what would you think of a Wolverine and Professor X buddy movie? To be fair, like they're the two best people from the X Men franchise. So if you're going to build a film around them, like I'm <laughs> on board with that. And it sounds like it's going to be an old man Logan, which I think we could probably read to be as much as Wolverine is going to be older in age. It might not mean anything else other than that. But that would that would mean two old geezers knocking around. <laughs> Who like says in, there's in, ageism in Hollywood? In the comics version of Old Man Logan, like Professor X doesn't feature in it at all, as I recall. I, you know, I'm pretty sure he's dead long before that story starts. So, I yeah. mean, it does beg the question of how... 
Like, how how will you have an old Wolverine, given that he ages very slowly, and Professor X still being alive? Maybe some weird stuff happens when he's taken yeah. off by Mystique. You know, I don't know. Mutant, maybe, maybe mutant things the, happen. Maybe the 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 weird like changing between universes or timelines has <laughs> fast made his aging faster. Yeah, I mean, to like be fair, that. it's not like the X Men movies at the moment are overly concerned with continuity, are they? Well, the thing is, now you've mentioned this kind of old man buddy thing. Now I, I just want a film where Professor X and Magneto go and hang around in New York and take pictures of themselves <laughs> in in bowler hats, but with Wolverine in it as well. Just just have those three just messing about in New York, taking photos <laughs> of themselves and putting them on the internet. Um, if it is, if it does follow in any way of being a sequel to um, The Wolverine. Um, I do wonder whether, I mean, there's that, there was that sequence, I can't remember where it actually made the finished cut or whether it just showed up on the DVD with him opening the yellow and black costume. Yeah, um, that was that was an extra, wasn't it? In fact, it, was it is, even on the DVD? <laughs> it definitely, I've definitely seen it somewhere. It's still leaked, I'm not sure it was on the DVD. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, rem- I remember seeing that still and then wondering where the hell that even went because well, yeah, I don't to, think I've ever seen it as footage. They had to do that post-credit sequence that doesn't make any sense. <laughs> um, but th- it would be pretty cool, wouldn't it, if uh, for Hugh Jackman's final outing, he finally puts on the iconic costume. Yeah, it finally would be. Finally puts on yellow spandex. <laughs> <laughs> and then someone says, "Would you prefer black leather?" Yeah, and it's <laughs> as ridiculous as it was then. <laughs> um, but I, I think I think we'd all be uh, we'd all be quite interested in a movie led by Hugh Jackman and Patrick Stewart. Just anyone like, that like anyone that Hugh, all over yeah, again. anyone that Hugh Jackman has chemistry with would be fine because most of his films and you know even the Wolverine films are just tedious as hell. Yeah, it just he works when he has people to play off, and yeah. in the X Men films, he plays off pretty much everyone really well. And you could pick almost any character to team him up with from those films, and there's some kind of connection. But just, yeah, his solo films completely struggle from from the lack of other X-Men characters in them. It might be nice just to start off a film with a relationship that's already established. We don't have to mess around doing anything else. It's just, let's launch into a story with characters we know. Mm-hmm. There's no yeah. there's no heavy lifting to do. Let's just go. Which really, considering how many times he's played Wolverine, should should be the case. <laughs> <laughs> Seems like a good idea to me. I don't know. I, I think they should tell Wolverine's origin story again in his last <laughs> film. I think I think there'd be some good mileage. Different out of that. origin in that different yeah. universe, uh, in that different timeline. Okay. Um, well, let's move on now. When Tom Hardy exited uh, Suicide Squad, there was talk that he was working on another DC project. Um, and uh, it's emerged this week that that project looks very likely to be 100 Bullets, um, which is not something that I have ever heard of. Um, so, uh, guys, I'm going to need you to explain to me, what is Tom Hardy going to be doing here? Um, well, he's going to be producing it, we know that much. <laughs> um 100 Bullets is a Vertigo series, uh, won an absolute crapload of awards, ran for about 10 years because it's 100 issues long. I mean, you can't call a comic 100 Bullets and have it not be 100 issues long unless it <laughs> sells really badly. <laughs> we lost a load of bullets. It's now seven. <laughs> uh, I'm just remembering the great 10 miniseries that was nine issues long. <laughs> yeah, each one was supposed to be about a different character in of a team of 10 people and then they put out nine issues. <laughs> <laughs> um yeah, so uh, 100 Bullets, uh, but written by Brian Azzarello, drawn by Eduardo Riso. Um, it's a crime noir type thing, 
but more a kind of crime noir conspiracy thriller type thing. Um, the basic premise is that various people get approached by this guy called Agent Graves, who gives them a briefcase um, with a gun, a hundred untraceable bullets, and the details of um, you know kind of the whereabouts of someone who has wronged them in their life, and is basically giving them the option to take revenge without fear of reprisals. Um, so to begin with, it's kind of an anthology series about a bunch of different characters who that happens to. But as it goes on, it gradually starts to unfold its own kind of mythology and backstory and conspiracy. And it turns out that everything is a lot more connected than you think. The problem with it is that it's one of those things that kind of like, say, The X-Files, um, it was a lot better when it was a load of unconnected anthology stories than when it got obsessed with its own mythology. And it starts to get really confusing and somewhat dull in its second half. I kind of, it is a quite good read, but it's got a really kind of exalted reputation that I, I kind of feel, kind of like with most of Brian Azzarello's writing, I think is a little bit overrated. Kind of Azzarello is kind of thought of as being up there with Ed Brubaker and Greg Rucker, who are the absolute kings of crime comics. And while I think they are both fantastic and deserve all the plaudits they get, I've never really got on with Azzarello, and 100 Bullets kind of sums that up. But it looks great. It's an interesting series. It's an interesting hook for a TV show, certainly. Oh, no, it's, no, no. it's a movie. It's a movie, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. This is the thing. It would make a much better TV show because it's an <laughs> anthology thing. I don't really see how it's going to work as a movie. Um, the other thing is that people are already suggesting that Tom Hardy would play Agent Graves. Yeah. But he's an old man and there there are several other lead characters who Hardy would be much more appropriate for. Them. And the, basically the breakout character is a guy called Lono who is a sadistic kind of vicious hitman guy. And it is such a Tom Hardy role, and it, that's that's really where they should be looking in terms. I mean, that character even had like a spin-off miniseries of his own a few years later, kind of after 100 Bullets had finished. Right. Um, and yeah, like that's that's the obvious choice for Tom Hardy to play because Agent Graves should be like Malcolm McDowell or somebody. You know, it could definitely make something really good because it's such a strong hook. This thing of you know this this kind of you know offering revenge. Would you ta- would you take that revenge if it was offered to you? Um, I think they would need to deviate from the comic to really make it work as a film. So, be interested to see what they do with it. Okay, um, well, let's move on now to um, to an actual TV project, not one that Seb just wishes was. <laughs> um, <laughs> and this is a show called Powerless, which is going to be potentially a half-hour single-camera sitcom uh, coming from the guy who created A to Z, uh, Ben Queen. That was a short-lived sitcom uh, from last season. And this will actually be based on characters from DC Comics um, and will be a a workplace comedy set in one of the worst insurance companies in America, with the twist being that it also takes part in the universe of DC Comics. So essentially, it's going to be an insurance company that have to deal with superheroes. And when it says that it takes place in the DC universe, this is this is coming from a Deadline report. I don't know whether that means a, a, the comics universe, the movies universe, the Gotham universe, the Flash Arrow universe, <laughs> yeah, maybe that includes Supergirl. <laughs> a few uh, yeah, they've got a lot to choose from. But Seb, you you were saying how very confusing this is that this is a DC Comics TV show. Um, yeah, because well, actually, I, th- I think maybe um, James could maybe tell us a little bit about a certain Marvel property that this bears an uncanny resemblance to. Yeah, Marvel Marvel has a series called Damage Control, which is 
basically this premise like uh it's been in the works for years like if you go back and look at movie uh movie news you'll find mentions of damage control scripts lying around from like 10 15 years ago maybe and they Hadn't just drew, drew pierce said at some point that he wanted to make yeah like he, you oh, know, he'd be, he'd be, so be, good he'd be perfect for it especially if you've ever seen his sitcom no heroics like it's exactly that sort of tone um yeah, we'll get we'll get to that on the podcast but yeah damage yeah. control is marvel's sort of cleanup crew who go around sort of you know clearing away the fantastic fours monsters after they've beaten them up and you know dealing with insurance claims for buildings that the hulk's knocked down that sort of thing like it's it's exactly this premise it's kind of astonishing that dc or warner are getting away with it does dc have anything that remotely resembles this in the comics no not not that i can think of some someone may correct us like tonally dc have got comics that sort of go for the whole you know kind of more down-to-earth comedy aspect and i'm thinking of things like justice league international but that is still a comic about superheroes and they have maybe done comics kind of focused around non-hero characters sort of particularly like daily planet type characters and stuff like that i can't think of a single dc property that in any way resembles this at all Mm. so it really does look like they have taken a marvel thing and decided to do a dc version of it but not even bothered to do the comic first (laughs) they've just taken it straight to the screen it's it's really weird part of me wonders if whoever's writing this wrote it as damage control and couldn't get it made (laughs) and has taken it over to warners instead and said can you fit dc (laughs) characters into this instead my sort of inherent feeling about this property is that they're going to make the the pilot and then like warner are going to look at it and say like we can't have you undermining uh <laughs> like marquee properties like you can't make fun of superman or batman or wonder woman so it's going to be you know a load of references to sort of d-listers that seb will enjoy and even i'll be sitting there going like uh justice league international maybe i mean to be fair like if it happens i'll definitely watch it because this is far more interesting to me than anything else they've done but <laughs> it sounds really fun i i, I hope it happens um, but i would still rather it was formally known as the justice league if they're <laughs> going to do a comedy tv series based around dc it should be formally known as the justice league but we'll talk about that one day that'll be the recommendation <laughs> once we cover the show yeah. podcast. <laughs> um okay well that brings us to the end of our news segment uh we will move on now to our spoiler filled discussion of christopher nolan's batman begins but before we dive in, let's listen to the trailer for the movie. How do you know my name? The world is too small for someone like Bruce Wayne to disappear. Your parents' death was not your fault. My parents deserve justice. I cannot let that pass. If you make yourself more than just a man, then you become something else entirely. Which is a legend. Mr. Wayne. Marshal Wayne, are you coming back for long, sir? As long as it takes to show the people of Gotham their city doesn't belong to the criminals and the corrupt. Bruce? Rachel? You were gone a long time. I know. Things are worse than ever down here. What chance does Gotham have when the good people do nothing? No makes a libel suit for advanced infantry. Kettle law utility harness, gas powered magnetic grapple gun. What's that? You want the tumbler? Oh, you wouldn't be interested in that. I spent a lot of time being scared for you. I heard you were back. But the man I loved. The man who vanished. 
who? The Batman. Right, so that was the trailer for Batman Begins, um, and I think where I'd like to start the discussion this week, guys, is by kind of examining the gap between Batman Begins and the previous Batman film. Noted disaster, Batman and Robin, voted the worst movie ever by Empire Magazine at one point, uh, I seem to remember. I mean, so that is the, that is pretty much held up as this unmitigated disaster, and, you know, we, we talked about this before, kind of like the Tim Burton Batman movie at the start of the 90s kind of resurrecting the superhero movie after Superman petered out. And then kind of, by the time Joel Schumacher had finished with it, kind of looked unsalvageable. But eight years passed between Batman and Robin and Batman Begins. So, I I don't know if you can remember back to when this was coming out, but like... What was the perception of Batman at that time, and, and and certainly on the screen? Was there any sense that like of excitement for a Batman film in 2005? It was kind of interesting because one of the things, the interesting thing about Batman and Robin is, like, obviously it is thought of as this this massive failure, and you know, artistically, it absolutely is. It wasn't really a box office flop. Like, it didn't do amazingly, but it pretty much made, I think, about double its budget back. So, I mean, you know, it wasn't kind of super smash hit, but, like, it wasn't it wasn't a franchise killer in terms of just pure box office, I don't <coughs> think. And they, and they were going to press ahead with um, Batman Triumph. Yeah, with, I was going to um, say. The Scarecrow. Like, there was a lot of talk about doing Batman 5, even... Even before X Men came out, they were on course yeah. to do it. Like they they put the brakes after after a lot longer than you'd expect, given how people slammed Batman and Robin. Yeah, exactly. Like it wasn't a Fantastic Four type scenario where people were saying, "Oh, there's definitely not going to be a sequel because this is so bad." There, w- it was more a sense of, "Well, this isn't very good, but we but it's Batman and they keep doing Batman films, so we know there's going to be another one along in a couple of years." Yeah. Um, if anything, and- actually, it was it was the fact that they changed, like they had Batman Triumphant ready to go, didn't they? And then that stalled, Pretty and much. they decided to do an origin, and then you know a couple of years of wrangling Howard Stern as the Scarecrow. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, a couple of years of wrangling, and you know, I would say Batman Begins more or less was developed uninterrupted from Batman and Robin. It's not like they stopped and said, we're not doing any more Batman until the yeah, right take comes I think, along. I think the only thing, yeah, the only thing was they, they kind of bounced around figuring out what they were going to do because there, the, there was the Darren Aronofsky one. Yeah. And there was, was that, was that the same one or a different one from the one that Frank Miller was actually going to script where um, Bruce Wayne was living in a, like a garage in Gotham City <laughs> and, and Big Al was like this big black guy who who was like his mentor and the reason he got called the batman was that he had a signet ring um, with tw for thomas wayne and when he punched criminals it left what looked like a bat mark in their face <laughs> that that was what we nearly ended up i don't know if that was the aronofsky one or if that was a different one but we nearly ended up with that in the kind of early 2000s yeah well, aronofsky um, has famously been wanting to do batman for ages yeah. uh, i mean in in a way i kind of wonder if actually getting like x-men and spider-man and kind of you know obviously you know in some ways x-men does try and sort of move away from you know the kind of campier elements of a comic book film but you get spider-man which is this kind of pure take on a comic book and i know batman begins is you know it goes for the kind of gritty realistic thing but i wonder if the success of spider-man made them go actually we can still do a batman film that is still 
properly Batman in the costume with the Batmobile and the Batcave and everything and have it not be terrible, you know? Well, it sounds like that um, basically that Warner's had been... I mean, because this, this film turned 10 years old earlier this year and Chris Nolan has been asked about it on a couple of occasions and it, he was saying how basically... It was just that Warner Brothers had kind of been trying to develop versions of Batman and a way of continuing it or doing something else. So, yes, the, the, the kind of projects you're talking about. And it got to the point where they just kind of everything had hit a dead end and they just kind of put word out that, hey, who's got ideas for a Batman film? Come and pictures. And Chris Nolan had done Memento and Insomnia, but I think probably he was still riding the crest of the wave of all the critical acclaim of Memento and um, basically went into the studio and said, I'd quite like to do what Richard Donner did for Superman, but for Batman, mm. and go back to the beginning and really delve into what makes this guy tick, and his pitch worked, and he was hired in 2003. Kind of just actually as well, just, just very quickly dipping in, there's one other thing that we probably should mention that we forgot in that development, the, the film that was going to be developed in 2002, which was Batman v Superman, and which I'm just yeah. looking it up now, <laughs> and it's quite interesting that it describes Akiva Goldman's draft, which had Bruce Wayne going through a mental breakdown after his five-year retirement from crime fighting. <laughs> Dick Grayson, Alfred Pennyworth, and Commissioner Gordon are all dead. Now, what does that remind you of? <laughs> <laughs> um, but obviously, you know, that was... I think I think the period of time in which that was a thing was pretty short, and they moved pretty quickly on to the Chris Nolan. Uh, Is it I Am Legend that has the poster that, for that film in the background? <laughs> I'm not aware of that, but that sounds like a, a reason to watch I Am Legend a second. Yeah, if you... Um, <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I think it was written it must... by Akiva Goldsman. Yeah, yeah. Akiva Goldsman put a fake uh, poster with a Superman crest on a Batman crest in the background of that movie. Um, <laughs> I think it's in Times Square, so it's like a a movie that exists um, when the world ends in I'm Legend. Uh, <laughs> so we've got that to look forward yeah. to. But so, yeah, so in 2005, given that Batman had been off the screen for eight years, mm. do, do, do you think, was there excitement for a Batman film? Was And was it, was it perceived as something that was kind of like trying to save or resurrect the character on screen? It kind of depends, like, you can imagine certainly the comics press would have portrayed it that way because, you know, there's a huge amount of derision for what Batman and Robin did to and Batman Forever did to the kind of franchise. Yeah. Uh, and, like, the comics press especially has always had a kind of uh, chip on its shoulder about superheroes being taken seriously. Mm. You can see how they'd have been very excited for someone to come along and, like, give Batman the respect he deserves. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, one of the reasons I ask is because if you look at the box office of this film, I mean, it did respectively. It was in the top ten highest grossing films of the year, but it was ninth between Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and Hitch. Um, this is a year when the fourth Harry Potter film and Star Wars Episode Three were at the top. Uh, it made $370 million, which is kind of some way in between the first and second X-Men movies, um, but, like, less than half of what Spider-Man made. Well, um, my- my theory for that is simply this is a film that wasn't marketed at kids mm. yeah but like, it was the sequel and I, I do wonder whether maybe in 2005 this is a period where Hollywood was really transitioning I mean I don't want to bang on about 9-11 because I feel like I do it on every episode <laughs> of this show and the way that it changed um, the blockbuster landscape but this is this is a film that kind of 
I mean, War of the Worlds was one of the other films in that list in 2005. And, um, I mean, by the time the next film comes around, Bond has rebooted um, to become, you know, from Die Another Day in 2002 to Casino Royale. Um, and, that, and that maybe, I don't know, maybe we just weren't ready for it. Or maybe mm. it kind of like, it was, it was a difficult sell because it was the first film of its type. It was the first. It was the first superhero movie to really go that grim and dark. Because even even the kind of the darker superhero movies that had arrived before, I think were probably all pretty pretty campy. Is that is that fair? I'm just thinking. I'm just wondering whether Daredevil is darker than Batman Begins or not. Like you know, given that Daredevil's got the kind of new metal aesthetic attached to it. But I mean, that's kind of what I mean about campy. Because that, that I mean. I don't think it is I, I campy think, though, like not think, intentionally. I don't. I, maybe it, maybe it's just the red light. Well, like, um, but I, I mean, <laughs> yeah. I, I'm just I'm just thinking if you look at the superhero movies that come after Spider Man and X Men, which are obviously these these big successes that kind of reinvigorate the genre. Uh, Blade is still kicking around, uh, and Daredevil, and then you get an angsty Hulk from Ang Lee. Um, Lee, which extraordinary gentleman comes and goes, and <laughs> Hellboy. There is a Punisher reboot. Catwoman, um, a Constantine comes out the same year as Batman Begins, and I do wonder. There's obviously a trend in what the projects they were picking to try and adapt to the screen. Spider-Man wasn't suddenly followed by you know loads of other bright, colourful superheroes. Yeah, apart from Fantastic, Fantastic Four in 2005. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but then that summer, it almost feels like you've got Batman and Fantastic Four standing alongside each other. And although they did similarly at the box office, it seemed like the res- the response to those two types of films were was from wider audiences. One of those is what we want now, and the other one is what we don't want anymore. And I think well, there's no question Batman began- Begins had an enormous impact. And-, and I wonder whether it is because Hollywood was trying to do this kind of thing, and filmmakers uh, and studios were responding to kind of like the climate that we lived in in 2005 and one of them was bound to hit and actually is it any surprise that it's Batman because which character fits better with that those kind of themes and aesthetic than Batman I I think you've got a fair thesis there (laughs) like I'm not sure I agree with it but, I'm much. You know, you've argued. Just, you've argued your point well. <laughs> I'm actually still just surprised that the, that the box office for, for Batman begins so comparatively low. When you consider, you know, basically, The Dark Knight made three times as much money as Batman yes. Begins, yeah. and I can't fathom being somebody who would go and see a sequel to a film that I didn't go and see the when first it, one. Even accounting for the Heath Ledger effect, that is an astonishing leap in box office from one film to another. I guess if you look at like the TV ratings for the final season of Breaking Bad. Like, if in the in-between so many people have caught up, and also this is there and is... I, I suspect that Batman Begins must have done really well on home media and had this kind of slow burn reputation. And also, uh, for, for various like reasons it, uh, that we don't really need to get into here, it was in the news a lot in the year leading up to its release. So I think probably if then people heard, oh, there's a sequel to this film and the last one's supposed to be really good probably went back and watched it, and then there's also the, the grim curiosity from a lot of people for the sequel. Should we talk about Batman Begins in in the context of being a reboot then? Because I, I was looking at... 
I mean, uh, reboots now are a thing that we are just accustomed to. We're, we're ready for our second Spider-Man reboot. We've just seen Fantastic Four rebooted. Um, DC are going to be rebooting most of their heroes in, in their universe. And then just, I mean, even like... It seems like we've moved away from remakes. We don't remake films anymore. We reimagine them and reboot them. Um, and I wonder whether that re- it, whether it does stem back to Batman. Um, I mean, Punisher kind of predates it uh, in like having a second stab at a character that has that has not uh, really taken off before. Yeah, it's surprising how it's interesting actually because I, if you, you know, if you say even if you'd said to me at the time, "Oh, Batman Begins" is a reboot," you know, I, I would just think of that. Not really think of that as as unusual. Maybe it's kind of coming to it from a comics background. I was going to say like reboots happen a lot in comics, and that's Um, something Hollywood kind of imported. Yeah, Yeah, but it's actually it's quite interesting that from a Hollywood point of view, it hadn't really happened much at all. If you think about it, there weren't many film series that sort of got to that point. Aside from Superman. Like yeah. when, and Superman, they hadn't got round to rebooting. Yet, like so. things like Indiana Jones and Back to the Future kind of stopped because they, you know, essentially couldn't better themselves. <laughs> Whereas Superman and Batman crash landed, and they had to think, how can we do another one now? But I found it very interesting that it seems to have really set the template because I don't know if you guys can think of a franchise that is rebooted, and when it, and when it comes back, it's like. Oh, this time it's a lot lighter, it's a lot frothier, it's a lot more fun, there's more jokes, there's more humour. No, it's always the dark and gritty reimagining for the reboot. Mm. Again, that comes from comics, um, because, you know, it does seem like the main reason to reboot something is to, is to suddenly have this <clears throat> existential fear that you that you have become too light-hearted, um, and, you know, you need to go and make it more... I mean, even actually, you can, you go back to Batman 1989. Batman 89, you can see as technically a reboot of the I Adam West to, Batman. I was about to make that point. <laughs> yeah. It seems perfect for comic book movies, the idea of rebooting for comic book movies, because adapting a character who... or a character or set of characters who have taken part in lots of different stories, and there are lots and lots of diverse different elements and different takes of their character on the page... So you can reboot. It's and it's particularly perfect for Batman. Yeah, because because Batman it just on the page it just had so many different styles and interpretations. That's kind of something I was going to come on to when when we come on to the question of whether this film is a good Batman film or not. But um, yeah, the point the point about Batman is you know compared with other characters, you know there a lot of other characters you always kind of have to go a certain way even if you're rebooting you know take the Punisher and even you look at the number of times they've rebooted the Punisher Angel Punisher really... <laughs> but you know you, you can't go and do a Punisher as a, as, as, as a comedy film um, but with <laughs> Batman you know every interpretation of Batman that has ever been on film exists in some form in the comics beforehand part of that is just down to Batman's age isn't it because he's been around sort of 20, yeah. 30 years longer than most Marvel characters, especially. Yeah. I mean, I think this film probably has a lot to answer for in terms of the the lessons that was that were learned <laughs> from this film um, have been often the wrong ones. Um, it's obviously a massively important and influential film, and I think it's had, in some regards, um, a really positive impact on superhero cinema, which um, which I'll, I'll get onto. But 
<laughs> in other regards, man, there was for a while everything was so dark and gritty. You kind of just had to turn the contrast up on your TV when you. <laughs> you, know, is, you know what's funny? What what you've just said about that is exactly what Alan Moore always says about Watchmen. It's the yeah, same effect that Watchmen exactly, had on yeah. comics twenty years. That's exactly on. what I was going to say. <laughs> Sorry, James. <laughs> okay, so guys, is this the definitive screen Batman? <clears throat> no, no. No, <laughs> but I'll say this. I'll say it with with, with qualification. Um, I, it's not a definitive screen Batman. Only in as much as, as you can probably gather from what I've said before, such a thing is not possible because there are too many different versions of Batman. However, this for me is comfortably the most successful rendition of a particular version of Batman. It's like if you're going to, you know, all all the films that have tried to do the various different versions of Batman, this one picks a particular version and for me absolutely nails it. It does so, what it's trying to do the best. Yeah, it can it completely for me succeeds in, in what it's setting out to do. It it loses, you know, it, it doesn't include a lot of elements about Batman that I think are quite key to the character. You know, he's not really a detective. He's not even really a kind of sort of swashbuckling adventurer. Um but for for the elements that they choose to do this is well rounded and everything makes sense and like you can see what goes into that character of batman and you can see why he's batman and you know i am getting I quite am ahead batman. of all the stuff that we're going to discuss but he's but <laughs> yeah th- this film for me absolutely nails a particular version of batman james absolutely perfect do you agree like my problem with the nolan films and specifically i mean this gets more pronounced the further you go into the trilogy, but there's there's not enough lightness to Batman in his films. Batman as a character needs that light edge, otherwise it just becomes way too grim, and I think that's the the path Nolan sets off down. And he kind of sort of merrily heads on his way thinking, yeah, this is a this is a serious and realistic portrayal of Batman and what he ends up is is a trilogy that definitively explains why you need to have Robin in the Batman films. See, I, I, the reason I disagree with that is that I don't think Batman needs to have that lightness. Batman can have that lightness, and I think it's wrong to say Batman shouldn't have that lightness. I think the problem is there's very rarely, if ever, and I can I can think of one example which I'll come to in a minute, being a version of Batman that that kind of gets all of the elements in there. And I, I think the version that succeeds is is Grant Morrison's Batman. For me, Grant Morrison's Batman is the one that finally mm-hmm. takes kind of all the disparate elements of Batman that they've ever been and actually shows that they can all work in one character and, and one set of stories. But but you know that was like less than ten years ago, and <laughs> up until then it hadn't really been done. And even like if you look at some of the best Batman comics that are talked about and the the ones that are big influences on these films year one long halloween killing joke that kind of thing they don't really have that lightness to them you know long halloween does not in any way have a lightness of touch because it's not really something that i think jeff Loeb is capable of um but that doesn't mean it's bad that doesn't mean it's a bad version of batman it's just it's a version of batman that doesn't have certain elements in the same way as the adam west version of batman isn't a ninja i agree with that he's not a good version of batman i totally agree (laughs) with that but the question is definitive version and i think a definitive version of batman has to have that likeness in him yeah but and yeah but but this is why i said at the start i don't think a definitive version of batman on film is possible and i think it's only happened in the comics when grant morrison came along i actually have long argued that batman begins is the best of the three movies in the dark knight trilogy um and i was um really shocked last night after re-watching this film that 
I don't think I think that anymore. I think that <laughs> Batman Begins is probably the most consistent and well structured of these movies, but I, I think I think the Dark Knight probably edges it despite being really bad really bad in its last twenty minutes. Maybe I'll change my mind when, when we do the Dark Knight, but actually I've I've been the, the opposite <laughs> process because I've always thought Dark Knight is the better one. Um, while acknowledging that that it has structural problems and problems with its length, um, after having just rewatched this, I'm I'm now firmly in the corner that that this is the best one. This is this is the strongest and the tightest and the best constructed and even to an extent the most interesting. Um, um, as much as I love Dark Knight, um, yeah, I, 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 it surprised me how much I got on with this film this I'm time around. Choking back bile at the idea of this film being tight when it has. 45 minutes to an hour at the start of tedious Batman ninja bullshit. See, that's what I thought previously. And then I watched it and I was like, I've really enjoyed those 40 minutes. Let's, um... Let's start actually discussing the movie. This seems like a good time to do it. Um, and I think we should start off by talking about Christian Bale. So we talked about this not being the definitive screen Batman. I wonder what you... What do you think of Bale? Because... I find this such a fascinating movie that it is. I think I think you one of you guys put it in the show notes that like about this movie. Like, is it the Batman movie that is the most about? Like, it's the most interested in Bruce Wayne and the most interested in him as a man. And I think it absolutely is. But what I found yeah. fascinating <laughs> was I'm. I, what I found interesting was the mechanics of what made Bruce Wayne tick and what what things feeding into him was going to make him act in a certain way and become Batman. But I didn't actually care about Bruce Wayne as a character. And I think it's a, re- it's a really strange performance from Christian Bale in that <laughs> it's... I kind of like him. I like him as Bruce Wayne. I like him as Batman. But I never really, never really feel that I know him beyond, or, or, or more that I feel that I've read an essay about him than I know him <laughs> as a person. Do you know what I mean by that? I yeah. completely I mean, agree it, with that. <laughs> like, Christian Bale's performance is is so understated. Like, you, there's no interiority to it. You just get everything that is on the surface, and that is, you know, a couple of crooked smiles is the extent of his Bruce Wayne. I I think the thing is with I mean I, I would never say that Christian Bale is is bad in the role, but in both Dark Knight and Dark Knight Rises, I would struggle to pick out moments where where he or the character stand out i mean you know in in dark knight he's completely overshadowed by the joker and in dark knight rises he's completely overshadowed by the plot um <laughs> you know in, in both cases it's just the, the films aren't really about him in this and from from this rewatch i was able to pick out three or four what i found to be really strong and well performed character moments it was stuff like i think the one that really nails it is when uh, Ra's al Ghul turns up at the party and you know basically says, "I'm going to kill everyone in this room, and the only way you can stop me is is to tell them that you're Batman and and yeah, you know, that's really get good. them all to leave." Yeah. And so he takes that decision to completely trash his own reputation by you know drunkenly telling them all to sod off. And there's a moment where 
um, someone walks past him and goes, oh, the apple's fallen far from the tree. And there's a great look where it's like, that's the one thing that he cares about is is his parents and his connection to his parents. So there's that. Um, I thought there was a great moment when he bumps into Katie Holmes' uh, Rachel for the first time when he's back yeah, in Gotham on the way out of the yeah, restaurant. when he's doing the Playboy act and then he suddenly comes out and she's there and he drops it and, yeah, he's, yeah. Um, but he's, like, you, there's this, this sense of this guy who is putting on a performance and it comes back yeah. to the idea at the end of the movie when she says to him... The, the mask you're wearing is Bruce Wayne essentially you know I, I yeah. know the guy you really are the guy you really are is Batman um, um, and it's, yeah, it's so, so a, it, he's he's really strong in those moments but like I say I, <laughs> I kind of feel like it's people I kind of feel like the the film is doing a really good job of telling me about him but I, I just never really feel like I know I know that guy I feel like part of the reason you get that sense is that like the first half of this film is flashback upon flashback and it's saying like, oh, this mm. is what happened to Bruce Wayne when he was a kid. This is what he did when he was a bit older. And it's like, mm. there is a point in this film where the flashback has a flashback in it. Like, there's the bit where there's the flashback of him returning to Gotham to kill Joe Chill. And then within that, there is a flashback of him in the cave as a kid. So it, like, it is ridiculously, like, it's See, I, Inception yeah, I mean, James, before James, Inception. You're talking, you're talking about all this like it's a bad thing. I think those opening 45 minutes are... Uh, incredibly well structured yeah. and well structured. I, I would I would go back to the word that Seb used which is tight which is that those 45 minutes do an incredible job of introducing to you to this character introducing you to like telling the origin story without ever feeling bogged down by the origin without ever feel like it is stopping any forward progress for your character because there are these dual narratives moving together and admittedly, that I think is why it feels a little bit like an essay, because while it's doing that, the film tells you, hey, this is what you're feeling, Bruce Wayne. And he goes, yeah, that is how I'm feeling. Also, and that's, what, that's, that's what happens when David Goyer co-writes the script. <laughs> it's like just Tom, on the nose. Tom Wilkinson's uh, Carmine Falcone says, to, says something to him, and he, and, he, and he kind of like, you see him go... Yes, I now think that. What you said has really <laughs> hit home, and I now think that. Or know, Liam Neeson says something, and you are like, yes, that is now the internal dialogue in Bruce <laughs> Wayne's head. And then people say, it's all about fear, Bruce Wayne, and you're like, oh, the movie's about fear. And the, the script for that opening 45 minutes is literally like, here is what this film is about. Here is what this character is feeling. Here is what the themes of the movie are. We are saying it all out loud. You don't need to read into any of it. But having said that, I, I think it's the opposite of slow. I think it's really yeah. propulsive the way that it knocks it knocks from kid flashbacks to adult flashbacks to stuff with Liam Neeson to training montages. It all feels like it has a real forward momentum. And yes, I, I don't I don't think it's in any way subtle, but I think it's <laughs> enormously entertaining. And by the time that forty minute that first forty minutes have finished, I go. I'm in. Like, I, I want to see that guy become. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Batman, because I know why he thinks he has to do, and I know why... <laughs> that's... Yeah. That's the, that's the key thing for me, and that's why though, though all of that works for me, even though, you know, in terms of the execution, a lot of it is very blunt. It's because it's the first time that we have ever had anyone bother to try and figure out and explain to us why he becomes Batman. Not just why a guy whose parents... You know you know from all the other films, a guy, his, his parents got murdered and so he decided to dress up as a bat and fight crime. That's literally all that the previous films tell you in terms of its, his origin. What this film does is it says, firstly, this is who he was before it happened. Secondly, this is what his immediate reaction is after his parents are killed. You know, he kind of has a, the sort of reaction that most of us would normally have. Then it's, this is why he learns that he shouldn't go down that route. Then it's, you know, this is why he goes off and this is what he discovers about the nature of criminality and about what he can do to fight it. And here are all of the little constituent parts that get put together as to why he dresses up as a bat mm. and goes around like a ninja <laughs> and, and has a cape. And like and a cape. Crop. It's not just he decides to put on a bat costume. It's here are all the little constituent parts, even down to this is why he wears gauntlets that have those little sticky no, scallops okay. on that he's always wore. This is you the know? thing, right? This is what upsets me about the film. The, the whole first hour is an attempt to construct a character for whom the rational response to his life is to become Batman. And yeah. I think there is no circumstance under which that can occur. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but if you think that there's no circumstance under which that can occur, then becoming, you might as well no, now not Becoming Batman, Batman doesn't have to be a rational response. That's, that's my <laughs> explanation. Like, he, his parents get killed and he dresses up as a bat. That's all you I need. Think- I think the movie sells it, though. No, I, I really do think the movie sells it. And again, I come back to mm. this. Like, there is no confusion about any of it. It tells you it all out loud. Like, <laughs> when 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 Raz is training him and he's saying, like, you know, about, like, um, you know, you need to turn the fear into anger or, you know, like, it's whether the, the, the anger needs to outweigh the guilt that you feel and talking about, like, how it can only end in vengeance and then... You you kind of understand that he's been trained by this guy, and he is getting caught like kind of like half of the constituent parts that he needs to be Batman, but he also mm. needs to rebel against half of those constituent parts. And I, I think it's I think it's a really, I mean I, I think it probably does do what some of the great superhero origin movies do, like Spider Man and Superman, which is to give you half of a character by the time he puts on the suit, and then the full character by the end uh, because because he kind of learns all the stuff from Raz but Before, yeah. hasn't quite figured out completely what it means to be this character and what he's fighting for and what means he's going to need to employ to do it the um, the, the the thing that thing that I really like about about what it kind of throws in there is that it addresses what I think is a pretty common criticism of Batman 
which is Batman is this privileged guy who's incredibly rich, whose parents <laughs> get murdered, and so he decides to you know become a vigilante. So he, he basically goes, right, I'm going to beat up crime. Um, I really like the scene with Falcone, and not just because uh, my friend got married in that same room. So <laughs> you know, I've, I've been in the room uh, of, of that was. It's not really a restaurant. It's it's a hall at Shepperton Studios. Um, but I really like that scene because that is someone saying to Bruce Wayne, you know, Bruce Wayne's parents have been killed. He's decided he wants to get revenge. He thinks he understands what the problem is. And this is someone saying to him, you don't understand the problem at all because you're in this privileged bubble. And that's what drives him to go off and understand the problem. And, you know, because I, I really hate when people go, oh, you know, oh, Batman, D- Bruce Wayne doesn't use his money to tackle the causes of <laughs> crime and poverty. And it's like, actually, if you've ever read the comics, he does. And there's all kinds of things that he does that's not just going out and punching people. But that's beside the point. <laughs> I just I just like that, that they bother to say it's not just a case of he decided to go and put on a costume and fight crime. It's he had to go and understand why this stuff happens before he could do that. I mean, to an extent, James, I, I completely understand what you're saying about, like, why are you trying to make a guy who dresses up as a bat believable and explain every side of it? Because there is that moment at the end of the film where, like, Raz sees him in costume and says, I know he talks about theatricality, but don't you think you've gone a bit too far? And it is it is funny. It's like... Um, I, I mean, because also I think this is... I think they do a lot better with the Batman suit in the two sequels than they do here. I think particularly with the mask and the cowl, um, he looks a little bit silly, or a little bit more silly, uh, however silly you can look I, dressed I as a I kind of like that he looks silly because he's Batman. Like, Batman <laughs> does look silly. Do you think, and actually, again... Do you think uh, Christopher Nolan remember... wanted him to look silly, though? Because I don't <laughs> Well, know. that's the question. No, no I don't think he did. No. But I, th- I think the fact that he did, I'm, I'm comfortable with. Yeah. Because there is no... You know, you said about there's no circumstance under which dressing up as Batman is the logical response similarly there is no circumstance under which dressing up as Batman makes you look good (laughs) or serious but uh, so after those opening 40 minutes though I mean so like we can agree or disagree to an extent about like how how well that works um I mean, I just think, you know, if you're going in to watch a superhero movie, there, there are certain leaps you're going to take. And if they if they can get as close to explaining why a man would become Batman as this film does, I am going to go with it. And I certainly yeah. do. The The 20 minutes I can do without are the moments, where, are, are the scenes with Lucius Fox where he spends this 20-minute sequence, like, literally crafting every single part of his suit. It's the over-explanations... <clears throat> And this is the thing that I think this film has really had a negative impact. Is this like, oh, we need to explain this and we need to explain that and that and how does that work? And what well, we've you, you've always seen this hero, you've always seen this character, but you've not, have you never wondered this thing? And it's like, I mean, like I don't think I need to see the origin of every single part of his outfit. <laughs> the points on his. Right. I mean, I think. I, th- I think I think Lucius is massively important to this because you know if you're going to take this approach to Batman, you can't just work on the assumption that one guy and his butler built an entire cave and all these vehicles and costumes. It's necessary you know, for this vision, mansion. but man, yeah. it's a long I think twenty de- minutes. Yeah. I think I think I would agree with you that the detail that they go into is a bit pointless. <laughs> I, but I think it's one of their. I think Ed, pretty much every scene with Lucius in the entire trilogy is pretty much the only chance that they get to have that lightness of touch that James said was absent. But I think is there with. with the Lucius stuff, and I think I think it's nice for Batman to have a cue. To be honest, because you know, <laughs> you know, there there is the question of it's like the whole thing about Peter Parker with 
with the organic web shooters. It just makes so much more sense for him to have not invented the web shooters. Similarly, you know, while Batman is meant to be a genius and, and you know have have keen you know an incredibly uh, keen detection skills and and you know be brilliant and all of that, this idea that he's also this incredible engineer who found the time to design <laughs> and build all of this stuff, it does stretch it a bit, and it couldn't really be Alfred either. So throwing in another character who does that, and the interesting thing about Lucius is that, that you know he Lucius isn't an original creation for the film but him being the tech guy is completely the invention of the film right. in in the comics he was um basically he was basically the, the other role that he has in the film of being the guy who runs wayne enterprises for bruce wayne that's what he was in the comics um, and actually i think the comics have shifted him more towards what he was in the films right uh, since then, because it, it it does just make sense, it you know it works for me, and I like the the wink wink, knowing you know the fact that it takes a long time before they even have an explicit conversation about the fact that Bruce is Batman. You know, it doesn't even really occur in this film. It's only really in Dark Knight. Well, there is there is I the lovely I, scene with Michael Caine and Morgan Freeman when they're both there after he's had his yeah. kind of like his first real yeah you know failure at the hands of the scarecrow but like lucius i don't think lucius ever appears on screen with batman in costume in this one i think he no. does in dark knight because yeah. you've got the stuff with the uh, the surveillance stuff yeah. but but in this he doesn't and i like that i like that he's got that that deniability that sense of distance uh, and yeah that you know they do have fun with the as i say the, you know the kind of the wink wink nudge nudge nature of it i think I think I think it's good. I don't really have a problem. I, I agree with what you say about they go into a bit too much detail about the specifics, <laughs> and also like why does he just open a drawer and show him of all things an out a costume? You know, it's like, he just picks a random drawer. My favorite drawer thing about that is be exactly that the thing scene that he is needs. when he turns up to Lucius and he says like, um, you know, I'd like to see all the stuff you've got, and Lucius basically opens a drawer and says like. Yeah, you know, here's all the stuff you need to be Batman. There's like a utility bow and a grappling gun. Like, what do you need it for? There's a moment later in the film where he's talking about like how he's form how he formulates the cure to the and he's like, oh god, just say you've done a cure. I've done a cure. I'm, I'm clever and science and cure. I have science to cure. <laughs> oh, like, so much like mumbo jumbo in this film so about in, like. In, it, it, oh, and here's how this. That's Chris Nolan's sort of stock in trade is over-explain everything. Like, and he does it to the character of Bruce Wayne, and he does it to the character of Batman. And in Inception, he does it for this entire world he's created, which have mechanics that never play into the film itself. Like, that's just his thing. And, and it can be really compelling. Chris Nolan does have a way of making boring exposition fun. And, like, I, I think there's, there's lots of silly stuff. And I say, like, mo- mostly what I resent that 20 minutes of Batman Begins for, because... It's never been something that's hugely bothered me in the past, but it's more. It was watching it this time and going, "Oh God, you you have a lot to answer for for what other films did <laughs> af- after this." Like it, everything that has been over-explained in origin stories is your fault, Christopher Nolan. Um, <laughs> but like doing it for the first time here, given that this is the first reboot and the first one to take this kind of more grounded, realistic approach to a superhero, I didn't. I it it didn't bother me at all the first time. I can I can handle it doing it, especially when it leads towards the scene, which it does, which is a full hour into a Batman movie, finally seeing Batman in action in that scene down at the docks where he takes out the goons to get to Carmine. What a sequence. What yeah. a sequence. For me, this this should have been basically the start of the film. Like I I wanted this scene look sort of fifteen minutes in. You not, wanted not Batman an hour began. In. Batman just begun. <laughs> yeah. 
You wanted Batman 89, basically. (laughs) (laughs) That scene is... I mean, I talked on our Arkham Asylum episode about how much I love the parts of that game where you're, like, hiding and, like, using your grapple gun to, like, Mm -hmm. sneak down behind people and take people out and appear from nowhere and... It is it is absolutely thrilling to the point that even with his slightly silly voice, not quite peak silly voice that he gets in the sequels, but when he announces "I'm Batman" um, and then says "Nice coat," you know, <laughs> I love that moment. That's one of my favourite moments. The, the, the whole thing with the guy with the coat. I think it's partly because I say some of the stuff that I really like is the the flashback stuff that's before he goes off and becomes a ninja. Uh, and that whole thing with him giving the you know buying the homeless guy's coat and giving him his old coat and then saying nice coat when he comes back it's so cheap it really is but I like it anyway. See that's that's the kind of lightness that I think is missing from a lot of the film. Like you get a couple of good one-liners and I feel like if he's going to be doing all this stuff he should be having fun with it and it doesn't happen enough. You definitely never get a sense that he enjoys being Batman. And it's just when, when I was talking earlier about key elements of Batman that were missing, and it's probably the same thing that you meant by saying about the, the lack of lightness. Um, for Batman to really work, not all of the time, but you need to have these glimpses that he just loves doing yeah. it. Um, and even like Dark Knight Returns, which is you know held up as the you know it's pretty much the pinnacle of grim and gritty Batman. There are a lot of moments in in Dark Knight Returns that basically go, "This is a madman gleefully having fun." Yeah, that's not <laughs> this know? character though, and that's not that that's not this character at any point across the trilogy. And I, and, and I think that's fine. I think that's fine. This is this is. I think that for you, once you've had all that explanation of what has driven him to that point. I think almost it would be weird for that character to enjoy it. It, it wouldn't. It wouldn't make sense to me. I think he tracks as a character. I think maybe. I think you know. I think now that I think about it, I think there's maybe one area where you do get the sense that he enjoys it, and it's whenever he's driving the Batmobile. <laughs> <laughs> when he's driving the Batmobile, I think is the time that he has fun. <laughs> uh, I'm. I'm still not sure. <laughs> no, because you have that whole bit. Gary where, Oldman you know, has the, more fun. Yeah. <laughs> but no, you, you have the whole bit where, where it shows the, the police chase on TV and and he makes that little wry comment to Alfred and it's like, you get the sense of, yeah, I enjoyed that. And it, particularly in, in the latter two films, like there are a lot of car chasey scenes in these films and the, Chris Nolan does them really well. Like the Batman films are really good at Batmobile scenes, I think. I think the second film in particular, uh, he does smash the shit out of Gotham, though, just with no, with a gay abandon. This is something that sort of like rankles me with the the Batman in these films is that in this film he literally drives a tank through Gotham City's police force. His rationale for it is like, oh, no one died. Like, well, not for lack of trying. But that's always a problem with these films because the Tim Burton ones are exactly the same for that. How many people does he blow up with the Batmobile well, yeah. in the Tim Burton one? But, you know, it's it's the kind of film where if you're making a film about a hero, it helps to have him be heroic. Oh, he's heroic. So, well, let's go back to that scene then, that amazing introduction scene when we actually see Batman doing doing all the stuff that like and using all those gadgets that we've had to see and using every little bit of subterfuge and all those things that we've had explained to us pay off in this scene and i think it's great for it to be leading to tom wilkinson being captured who has been established as i mean he's the tier three villain in this movie and i I think his, his him being established in those flashbacks to then batman to come and take him out in that sequence 
I think is is really fantastic. Um, and it uh, probably a lot comes back to uh, Chris Nolan casting someone like Tom Wilkinson and, and actually casting up this film with really strong actors across the board. Um <coughs> <laughs> with with one exception. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, uh, well yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but um yeah, I I think that that when when he actually captures Tom Wilkinson and, and takes him out and leaves him there on the uh on the makeshift bat symbol. Um I think it's I think it's a perfect crescendo to that first half of the movie and it makes so much of it feel worth it and earned. Yeah, like I love I really I love that scene. I just, I think it would have been as effective if it had been the opening scene of the movie. <laughs> uh, what do you, what do you think of the other supporting cast? So we've got Michael Caine as Alfred, Gary Oldman as Commissioner Gordon. Uh, we just spoke about Morgan Freeman as Lucius Fox, and then Liam Neeson as, uh, as he's still credited on IMDb, Ducard. <laughs> he's credited on that, and the actual end credits of the film credit him as Ducard and Ken Watanabe. I was going to say, I, it's like, did the credit writers not watch the? I film? remember seeing an action figure of Rachel Ghoul and it being Ken Watanabe, not Liam Neeson. <laughs> when when this movie came out, right? Given that that is Liam Neeson, right? Was everyone not just going, oh, well, he's Ross? Like, he, quite well, a yeah, few but... people were. Yeah. Was there, but was there any doubt? Because I, I, I seem to remember, I didn't watch this film in cinemas. I watched it uh, when it came out on DVD, and I was like, oh, I, I mean, I don't know if I'd been spoiled. I don't think I had, but I, I seem to remember being, oh, well, he's the main guy, right? I think anyone who knew the character knew who he was. But, you know, right. he wasn't... I don't think it appeared in any other adaptation except the cartoons, a couple of the cartoons maybe by this point. Mm. Um, certainly not in the computer games, which is probably where a lot of people learned about him from. Do you have any thoughts on the uh, on the, on the rest of those supporting cast? Any any MVPs amongst them? Um, Gary Oldman, yeah. obviously, <laughs> because Gary, Gary Oldman is, is the J.K. Simmons of, of this trilogy. He's, you know, he's the standout member of the cast. He's perfectly cast in terms of like look and demeanor and performance he has and he everything. has that perfect sense of bewilderment that you would expect jim gordon to have <laughs> like yeah. just the kind of haunted stare i feel like most of them have become the definitive versions of those characters alfred probably had a more recognizable version beforehand uh, but i think michael Caine now for a lot of people is alfred even though we've seen well, you only, new ones since. you only have to look at the fact that in both gotham and now from the look of it in batman versus superman they are sticking with alfred as you know he was a pretty hard military guy who then moved into mm. and like in the comics i think at some point they had given him a bit more of a um, a military <clears throat> background i think it was partly to explain how he was so good at dealing with all of his injuries <laughs> and stuff but the but he was still very much the quintessential english butler type and actually i think mainly his previous career was that he was an actor actually mm. but now it does seem that it's really difficult to do alfred on screen and not have it be similar in some way to the michael Caine version which i think is fine it's a good interpretation it works really well um shall we shall we talk about the character who i'm assuming both of you are talking about as being the one weak spot and that is katie holmes as rachel is that who you were talking about yeah yeah i mean she's not terrible it's just that everyone else in the film is really good and she doesn't really hit that level and so this character has been invented for the batman for this chris nolan invented her yes. right mm-hmm yeah, is it? Does she does she have any kind of parallels in the comic? I mean, has Batman had many relationships with people who aren't superpowered in some kind of way? 
I think what you could see her as is if she's close to any kind of love interest from the comics, it's probably Silver St. Cloud. Because Silver St. Cloud, you know, isn't like a, a super villain or, or a kind of powered character or anything. Um, was a love interest in the kind of 70s, late 70s Batman comics and was someone who learned his secret identity. Like he told her his secret identity. Um, so being a love interest who actually knows who he is, I think that's where they get that from. There's never really been a character who knew him as a kid except for the fact that retrospectively um, Paul Dini, who we talked about on the uh, Arkham Asylum podcast who wrote some issues of Detective Comics um, featuring a character called Zatanna who he's also a really big fan of he wrote some stories that sort of retconned in that they had been childhood friends and I think he kind of got some elements of that from Rachel right but it's going that way round rather than the comics influence in the films I think and so she yeah she, she 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 occupies a weird position because there's not a lot that you can point to the comics and say that's where they got her from she's very much an invention of the film do you think the character works so if you if you both think that Katie Holmes kind of doesn't deliver performance wise but do you think the character and her role in the movie is is a successful one? It's kind of hard to say, isn't it? Yeah, like, she's there to sort of tie Bruce back to his childhood, I guess. It does seem important that there is someone there to do that. Does it, though? Like, surely his well, parents... given the first, given the first hour of the film. I mean, doesn't, yeah, do, and doesn't Alfred do yeah, that? Well, yeah, you know, exactly. Like, like I feel like she was inserted because they wanted a love interest and Christopher Nolan was interested in that tension, maybe, between Bruce Wayne, the person and and Bruce Wayne the crime fighter I, th- I think there were a couple of really like I mentioned before a couple of really interesting moments with that character in the film um, I-, I don't really ever love her and Christian Bale together um, it's uh, it's weird. Katie Holmes looks really young, and and you kind of think like when they re- when they recast in the sequel with Maggie Gyllenhaal. I mean, you you'd almost think Maggie Gyllenhaal is like five or ten years older than, and that's not to say Maggie Gyllenhaal looks young, but they're like a year apart. Maggie Gyllenhaal's like a year older. They're both about five years younger than. I was literally. I was literally just googling Katie Holmes's age to check how much younger she was, and I was surprised to see it was just five, like five years. So I mean, they they look strange together as people who were childhood friends. Uh, the, the, the romance never really works, but I do like the idea that she has this link to the establishment and the other side of. So this guy is going to become a vigilante, but still kind of has some belief or some like i mean uh, it really plays into the trilogy as it goes on that he he kind of wants the system to be able to work he wants to be able to get to a point where the system can handle this and it doesn't need a man like him and she's a really important link in that regard she's a she's an important link to his childhood i think that like one of the standout scenes in the movie is when he's leaving the restaurant and bumps into her and that's that i think that's the moment when you when you as well as in any batman movie get the duality of batman and bruce wayne and i think that 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 moment at the end when she says to him like yeah i get it like i get i get who you are i think that's really strong as well and i think it is really important that this character is around for the dark knight to use her as well as it does because i think the dark knight uses the character exponentially better and it benefits from having her albeit with a different actress in this first film but as a love interest i really don't get her i think i think the thing is i mean this film doesn't have enough female characters in it <laughs> well um, yeah that's that's it has it has that one um, exactly so you know you can't really take her out of it because if you take her out of it it doesn't have any female characters in it apart from uh, bruce's dead mother um 
So, That's why I'm never against gender recasting, because if Lucius yeah. Fox was a woman well, in this film, that would be I was, fine. <laughs> that genuinely, I was would, literally would just fine. about to say that. Um, because what I was going to say was, I think the thing is, is that this film does not have room for a love interest. So I don't really think the character of Rachel serves enough of a purpose. She does in, in the second film, definitely. But in this film, she doesn't. And the film doesn't really have room for her. But what you could have done was have someone like Lucius be a woman instead. And that would have worked absolutely fine. Um, yeah. But I think the thing is, you know, it's a Hollywood film of this type. And they don't tend to get made without there being a love interest in there yeah. somewhere. It's just she's, she's shoehorned in in a way that doesn't really fit but at least it sets her up for the sequel where the idea of of bruce having a love interest does actually pay off yes so uh, yeah really worse than the sequel can we talk about i think my favorite performance in the movie is someone we've we've barely mentioned yet and that is uh killian murphy as uh the scarecrow who is like the second tier villain um, and the fact that all of the, the that we kind of have these three vill- villains in the movie that are like fragmented into different sections of the movie, um, and we kind of like peel away the layers at like going up the chain of evil command until we get <laughs> back to Raz at the end. Killian Murphy is, I think, fantastic here. He's really creepy, but charismatic and those glasses are whoever was working in the costume department picked a damn fine pair of glasses for him (laughs) um and i really i think i mentioned this in the arkham episode i really didn't know the scarecrow before watching batman begins but the character seems perfect for the story that's been told here the word fear is used in pretty much every page of the script (laughs) and so to have the scarecrow there works really well and I love the simple character design of him just being in a suit the whole time and then just puts this kind of, like, bag on his head, which has a creepy <laughs> mouth. And uh, Killian Murphy sells it the whole way through. It's just a shame that he's dispatched as easily as he is with, like, what, a taser at the end of the movie and when he's manically riding through the streets on his horse. Yeah, <laughs> his fire-breathing uh, horse. Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I'm not sure I have much to add to what you said, other than that I, I do pretty much agree with with all yeah, yeah. of it. You know, yeah. I, I like the Scarecrow. I think he's he's well well portrayed in this film. Killy Murphy's just having so much fun with it. Um, I like the fact that he gets brought back for Dark Knight yes. as well, and it's just and has just become this kind of petty hood. I think it is <laughs> my favourite moment you know. in Rises when when they're in the the courtroom with him. <laughs> oh, of course, and he's yeah, of course he's yeah, in holding Rises court. Well. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah I, I thought he was really great and probably used just about right. Like, he mm. he is there to be a challenge to Batman and because Batman has trained so much in combat, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a different challenge that is not so easily overcome. But it's also really comic booky. I mean, uh, I was watching this um, with uh, former podcast guest Reese, and we were we were laughing when like Batman discovers him, and they're literally pouring it into a crack in the drain. Yeah. It's like something <laughs> you'd expect to see on the animated series. It's fantastic. Um, and Scarecrow, like, although there, he does have this like grounding in Christopher Nolan, has to make sure that everything can work, and that there is this toxin that does this and this, and like it all can be he can exist in this same grounded reality that Batman does. He's also in- incredibly comic booky and silly, and his plan is 
uh, a really it's to poison the water supply. I mean, that's yeah. it's like what an old it's a joke yeah, player. or what an old <laughs> Bond villain would do. I, mean, um, I do. There is a for a film that is so based around this idea of of making everything realistic and carefully explaining how everything comes about. Why does the film have a weapon that vaporizes a water supply but doesn't vaporize the water that's in? people i mean this is kind of again it's christopher nolan's wish to over explain everything bites him in the ass on this because particularly the toxin like it's in the water supply so if anyone boils a pan of water they presumably get affected because it needs to be vaporized (laughs) and like what does the toxin actually do because it knocks out Bruce Wayne for two days. It almost kills uh, Rachel. It, it, no, it, it drives them mad with fear. So the idea is that everyone will riot and Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the idea. Apart. But the reality is it has, like, three different effects on three different people. <laughs> <laughs> because Christopher Nolan's kind of gone, well, this is what it does and how it does it, and now there's no room for any deviation of interpretation in there. Uh, we, we'll get to the final showdown. So, I mean, uh, what I also don't think is the greatest is that... Uh, Raz al Ghul, when he returns, decides to return by revealing himself as Raz to Batman, revealing that he's in Gotham, revealing what he's about to do. And, like, you think, Raz, what if you'd have gone to Gotham first and then <laughs> gone to the Wayne Mansion and told him afterwards what you just did? <coughs> that would theatricality. probably that be would a be better Watchmen. plan. Theatricality. <laughs> yeah. Um, also, I, do, I, I know he's the villain when he says... Um, you burned down my house and left yeah. me for dead. Like, you, no, he no, didn't. He didn't. Yeah. And, and you burned down my house saved and saved me. And also, like, there is the moment when when Batman has just done that, and the villager like turns to him and says, "I will tell him that you saved his life." And you're like, yeah. "Well, either that villager is a complete dick and a liar, <laughs> or Roz is just ignoring that." I mean, he did burn down his house. Like, that, yeah. that's fair. But he didn't leave him for dead. But I guess maybe maybe because it's Liam Neeson and he's charismatic and because he has previously served a role as a mentor, maybe we need to see him as like uh, outwardly like despicable and unlikable at that point. Uh, to, yeah. to Because otherwise there might be a sense of, oh, we liked this guy. Yes. Yeah, even though he's doing this thing, but it is it is big and MacGuffin-y. And everyone loves a monorail as well, so... <laughs> Do you know, that's, that's one of the things actually that um, I think this film does really well that the sequels don't really live up to is Gotham's really well defined in this and, God, yes. and has a look because it has the whole thing with Wayne Tower and, and the train and yep. everything is and I know they kind of based it around Chicago but it doesn't feel like it's just Chicago um, you know it, it feels like its own city not to the same extent as in the Tim Burton films but still you get a feel for Gotham and the whole thing with the narrow you literally like get that. a map of it at one point <laughs> yeah and it's a real shame that by the time you get to Dark Knight Rises, it's just, oh, here's a shot of New York. Yeah. And it's really recognisably New York because they're in the middle of building the Freedom Tower. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a shame that, that, that the other films don't really make as much of, of Gotham's geography. Because I love the, 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 the idea of the train and Wayne Tower. Mm-hmm. That's really comic booky. Um, What do you think of the final showdown then with Roz on the... I mean, because we talked about the Wayne Manor scene being, being pretty good um, with the way that Bruce Wayne kind of gets rid of everyone. But for me, I, I thought it was a little bit of a shame that this movie that you're right that the MacGuffin is distracting that it doesn't really make sense um, and the monorail looks great but f- I-, I love the the opening montage sequences with Raz and Bruce fighting whether it's in the room with all the different League of Shadows members and he nicks the arms or whether it's on the ice with the, the unsure footing I think they're all fantastic and uh, I- I- I've always been a little bit underwhelmed by the by the final sequence here yeah I think so it's it's third act syndrome isn't it and it's you know I, I like um 
Gordon's involvement in it. Um, you say involvement. But, well, he basically is the one who, yes. <laughs> yeah. who saves them, isn't it? Yeah. If anything's the major, like, the you know, uh, wrong turning in the final act, it's that Batman doesn't actually save the save the city he gives gordon a set of keys so that he can save the city i, I mean this this seems to me i'm, I'm surprised you guys haven't made, um, brought it up because i thought this would normally be the kind of thing that would uh, infuriate you he lets yeah. Raz die uh he consciously <laughs> decides to let Raz this die does, and this now does infuriate me yeah and now that we've watched this whole franchise we know that there's no fake out there's no kind of retconning that is a conscious decision that batman makes and Raz dies and it seems like it's almost like I have this morality that I have uh, that I've exhibited the whole way through this film, but hey, I found a loophole. Yeah, well, the exact phrasing is like, "I'm not going to kill you, but I don't have to save you," and it's like, well, you sort of do because you're Batman and you're a hero. It is sort of if you if you compare it directly to um, what happened during the Nightfall storyline in the comics and what's seen as, as the turning point when, when John Paul Valley, the replacement Batman, has gone over the edge is when um, a serial killer called um, Abattoir dies. And John Paul doesn't actually kill him, but he's hanging from a chain over a thing of, of molten steel and Batman turns around and walks away and leaves mm. him. And as far as Bruce Wayne is concerned, he's killed that guy. Yeah. Even though he didn't technically kill him, he's killed that guy. And that is that is seen as kind of breaking I mean, the code. In films, that sometimes, like, that's the kind of thing that I can forgive because um, I, I think it probably does work slightly differently on the screen, the way you, you feel and react to those heroes. And I, I think probably evidenced by the, the amount of times that films are willing to let superheroes kill compared to the comics. <laughs> Um, but what you've just hit on is is the reason why this doesn't really bother me that much, which is that it happens so often. I've I've given up getting annoyed by it. <laughs> that it's just you know. It wasn't that I was annoyed by it. I just thought it was inconsistent for the character that I'd watched in that opening forty minutes. It seemed like a strange decision to me, and almost it was just like it's easier to end the film if he's dead. Like yeah, yeah. do we yeah. do we have I, to I take him agree, off and lock him up and do yeah? It just just kill him and then we can end the movie. It's it's pretty much as I say it's it's what always happens and it's even you know in the Tim Burton film not only are there all those scenes with him shooting stuff out of the Batmobile but at the end of the film he is directly responsible for the death of, jo- of the Joker because he fires a grappling mm-hmm. thing to to catch the Joker on that gargoyle that essentially kills him when you've already had a Batman film that ends with him basically killing the villain oh and Batman Forever's the same because he flip he throws the coins at Two Face and causes Two Face to lose his footing and fall so frankly. Batman is a serial killer in the films, <laughs> so uh, I, I find it hard. While I can, I completely agree with the argument that it is both inconsistent for the character of Batman in general and for the character of Batman in this film. I just like it. Just seems to be a problem that films have, and but and the rest uh, of the know. trilogy. I mean, he said he doesn't he doesn't let the Joker die at the end of the Dark Knight. He, yeah, he, he, although he does. I oh, know he doesn't shoot Bane, but he doesn't mind Catwoman shooting Bane. Like, uh, I'm, I'm, I would say this is a rare example of me being less jaded than Seth. Because <laughs> like, I just think if if you want to call your character a hero, you can't have them just killing people. Like it's just it's the, like the number one difference between someone who's a hero and a villain. Like is that heroes protect life, and I think it's genuinely, I think it's a really toxic narrative to have. Like someone who is a hero and lauded for that fact and portrayed as selfless and just 
to be essentially acting as an executioner off his own back like it's just it, you know it just doesn't work for me on any level and i think anyone who makes a, a film about a hero specifically a superhero because like that's the you know that's the tipping point is like you can have john mcclain shooting people that's fine because he's a man and he has the powers of a man but superheroes and people like batman and superman shouldn't be taking life into their own hands because that elevates them to the level of gods and like it, it just it doesn't work to put them in that position like they have to they just have to have something that is sacred i, I completely agree i just think it's a battle that we've lost in superhero <laughs> movies already so you know Let, let's not end this on a sour note uh, because <laughs> I, I mean james i think it's is it fair to say that there is still a lot about this film you like, even though there is stuff that frustrates you? Yeah, I would say this is my third favourite Batman film. Uh, what 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 are your what are your favourites? The Dark Knight is my favourite, and my second favourite is Batman sixty six. They would be my top three as right. well. I'm not a hundred percent sure in what order. I think it depends on what mood I'm in. I think I would still just about put Dark Knight top, followed by this, followed by sixty six. Um, I can't wait to do 66 on the podcast. I think, I think we're going to blow some people's minds with, that, with our reactions to that one. Um, and, and given all that, where do you rank Christian Bale in the Batmans? Because what, what I always find is that people love these movies and then you say, and who's your favourite Batman? And they're like, oh, uh, Adam West, Michael Keaton. Um, it, yeah. it's, it's never Christian Bale. I, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, well, yeah. It's, I, I, watching this again, I liked him more as Bruce Wayne than I remember. Yeah. Um, if if this was the only Christian Bale Batman film, I think people would have less of an issue instinctively calling him the best Batman. I think the, I think the reason why Christian Bale isn't the best Batman is that he went on to appear in two films that just completely push him into the background. Well, and the voice. <laughs> Yeah, I think the voice voice. because in this film he sounds too much like Christian Bale, and I think it would have been like I think I I can almost imagine like if this film came out now, it would be on Twitter. It'd be like, yeah, he's Batman, and like he's got the suit. But I mean, you can tell that's Christian Bale. Like, who would not know that that was Bruce Wayne going? I'm Batman (laughs) in my Christian Bale voice, and then he just way overcorrected for the sequels. I'm Batman. (laughs) Um, <laughs> and I think that I think that voice is really I, I genuinely think that voice has been a problem for him being the best Batman, even if he is a good Bruce Wayne. To his credit, he doesn't have the stupidest voice in the trilogy. Oh, what are you saying, James? <laughs> <laughs> See, this is going to be a point of contention because I, I I love <laughs> I love voice. it. I just I, think I it's it. hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> Um, well, but that is, that is it for our Batman Begins discussion. But, guys, you need to recommend me a couple of comic books that I need to read off the back of Batman Begins. Okay, so my recommendation is the film that this is probably most like, uh, the comic that this film is most like, sorry, which is uh, Batman Year One. It features uh, Falcone and uh, Jim Gordon as fairly major characters in it. So uh, the issues for reference are Batman 404 to 407, but most people would know it just as a collection because it's one of uh, Frank Miller's more famous Batman stories. And it's drawn by David Mazzucchelli, who's 
you know, about as close to a definitive artist for Batman as you can get, really. Okay, so Batman Year One. Seb, what have you got for me? Okay, so I'm going to cheat slightly because what I'm actually going to recommend you are two different storylines, but the reason is because each of them is only three issues long, so I'm basically giving you six issues, which would be, you know, your average trade length. I wanted to give you some Ra's al Ghul stuff, but none of the relevant 70s stuff is on Comixology, so I'm glad that you said that you liked the Scarecrow in this film because I'm going to give you two Scarecrow storylines, both of which are actually from the same writer... Um, who is the writer who I think has done the Scarecrow the best. And it's your favourite paleontologist, Alan, Alan Grant. So not that one, but the, but the Scottish former 2000 AD writer, Alan Grant. Um, so Alan Grant, along with an artist called Norm Brayfogle, who, what James was saying about definitive Batman artists, Norm, Gra- Norm Brayfogle is absolutely one of the definitive Batman artists. He, he was... I say was because he's kind of semi-retired at the moment um, because he's been ill, but he he is brilliant. Um, uh, Alan Grant and Norm Brayfogle, um, they started out on Detective Comics in the late 80s. Um, They then got shunted over to the Batman title instead, and then they got given a a series called Batman Shadow of the Bat. Um, But essentially it's kind of one continuous run of them doing a similar kind of stories. So I want you to read issues 455 to 457 of Batman, uh, which is a three-part story from 1990, um, featuring the Scarecrow. It's also a very significant story for Tim Drake, the third Robin. It is essentially the story in which he properly becomes Robin for the first time. Uh, but then I also want you to read issues 16, 17 and 18 of Batman Shadow of the Bat from 1993. Um if I was only recommending one of these pairs of story, one of these sets of three, I would recommend the Shadow of the Bat ones. It's a storyline called The God of Fear. It's my <clears> favourite <throat> Scarecrow story that I've ever read. The only reason I'm not recommending it you on its own is, firstly, it doesn't have the real Batman in it because it's set during Nightfall and it's set just after Jean-Paul Valley has taken over as Batman. And secondly, it's drawn by an artist called Brett Blevins, who is really good... Um, but he's not Norm Brayfogle. And if I'm recommending you stuff from this era, I want you to read some comics that Norm Brayfogle has drawn. So I'm recommending you two Scarecrow stories, one of which has one of my favourite ever Batman artists on it and is quite good, one of which doesn't and doesn't have the real Batman in, but which is a better Scarecrow story. So, as I say, because they're by the same writer, they're quite similar in tone. Um, I think you'll enjoy them, so... Yeah. Excellent. Okay. Um, well, we'll move on now to our final section, which is the pitch. Um, and this, uh, again, come, uh, this uh, originates from me watching the film uh, with uh, former guest Reese, and we were chatting during the film about which of the villains that Christopher Nolan didn't manage to find a way to put into his three films and which ones we'd like to have shown up. Um, and then, I, so I thought uh, it would be fun for you to both pick a villain who didn't show up in Christopher Nolan's movie um, and tell me who you would cast as that villain who would be appropriate for the Nolan universe, for the Nolan Batman universe. So yeah, pick a villain who uh, Chris Nolan didn't use and tell me who you would cast. Um, and Seb will come to you first. Uh, nice and simple, this, actually. And it's a, you know, well, is it a serious answer? <laughs> I don't know. So obviously the, the best Batman villain that didn't get used in the Christopher Nolan films is the Riddler. Um, and 
if you're picking an actor, you have to pick someone. I, I, I put, I gave myself the rule that I had to pick someone from Christopher Nolan's troupe of actors. <laughs> so I tried to find the best person who hasn't been in a Batman film already, but who is one of Christopher Nolan's actors. Uh, so I'm going for Ellen Page as the Riddler. <laughs> um, James, who who would you um, cast as a Chris Nolan villain? Uh, so I'm still waiting for the definitive Harley Quinn. Like I'm. I'm not entirely sure Suicide Squad is going to give it to us. But if Christopher Nolan had continued, I would have liked to have seen him follow up the sort of Joker storyline by introducing her as someone who could not replace Heath Ledger, but certainly take that torch from him. Hmm. Uh, I would like to see... I see. I kind of struggled to find an actress who I think could pull off Harley Quinn with the sort of depth that Christopher Nolan would want. But I think... Ellen Page. Yeah, I think Scarlett Johansson is the best choice. Oh, that's very interesting. Mm. I, I thought you were gonna. I thought you for a minute you were gonna go with the the personal connection to Heath Ledger and saying Michelle Williams, who I actually think could be a <laughs> like crazy good choice. For actually, her. oh yeah. Okay, well, I, I mean, I, I uh, actually had had um, an idea for this, which is why I was uh, putting it forward. I would love to see an Eva Green Poison Ivy. How good would that be? I, I actually think you should win this for Michelle Williams as hard work. <laughs> I think this week um, I'm going to go with uh, Seb for the win. <laughs> I'm sorry, James. Sorry. This is why I don't uh, do serious answers. I, I thought really hard about this. <laughs> the win this week goes to Seb, and um, and that is it for this week. Uh, but if you are enjoying the show, then please do subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, Player FM, or your podcast app of choice. And if you've already subscribed, then please leave us a rating or review, and we'll read uh, any of those out. Uh, we'll give you a shout-out on our next full episode. Uh, you can find us on Facebook, on Twitter, at CU underscore podcast, and send us an email to cinematicuniversepod at gmail.com. Um, so you can send to that email, send comic book concepts you want to explain to the start. And if you've got any idea for pitches, we could certainly use those at the end as well. You can find previous episodes of the podcast at cinematicuniverse.libsyn.com and because this is a Film Divider podcast on filmdivider.com. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Bye. Howard, you really are the worst. Cinematic Universe returns in two weeks' time with Howard the Duck. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.